Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. You're listening to Setting the Pace, your go-to Pacers podcast with Alex Golden and Michael Focci. Sabonis down the lane with authority. Oh, Miles Turner bringing that smoke. Lundberg, skies high for the jam. Warren lets it fly. Yes! T.J. Warren is not human. The Setting the Pace podcast had Kevin Pritchard on. Well, you got it setting the pace, and I think that's terrific. What's going on, Pacer Nation? Hope you all had a great July 4th weekend. I'm joined today on Monday with the one and only Dave Cyril from at Miller Time Pod on Twitter. Dave, what's going on, man? I'm just uh, enjoying uh, the freedom and the love of the small gunpowder this morning. It's a fun weekend. Have a good fourth? Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, I got to ask you because I've seen you on Twitter talking about people shooting off fireworks late at night. Last night, how late was it going off in your neighborhood area? <laughs> oh, so that was fine. Okay, so maybe it ended – actually, we were hoping that it kind of went a little bit later because we cleared out the driveway. I set off some fireworks of my own. My kid's seven, um, and I also have a, a daughter, Lucy. She's two. And it was the first time that we'd done that. We usually go on vacation on the 4th, and so it's the first time we've been home. Um, and so, you know, I bought the pile of fireworks from the sketchy place that used to be a marsh and, you know, then I got a big bag of it and I let all of those off and, um, he had a great time. I did a thing where like, he kind of like held my hand as I lit the fireworks and we all ran screaming and then, you know, so he had a wonderful time on that. But by the time we got done, most of the big fireworks around us, uh, uh, were finished. We kind of live on the border of a bunch of different cities, so we can see, like, all of them, which is kind of cool, but, like, we missed uh, most of them because uh, we went a little late. So, if you go to, like, 1130 or something on the 4th of July, for me, personally, you get a pass, I would say. Um, It's more about, like, two weeks ago, people were setting off fireworks. (laughs) I mean, come on. You know, like... Kids got to sleep, pets got to sleep, people have PTSD, all that sort of stuff. Like setting off fireworks, um, even at like, you know, nine o'clock at night, two weekends before is a little intense, you know, because all those kids and pets are trying to sleep. That's what I would be all about. My personal thing is it's kind of like, it's kind of purge rules for the most part on the 4th of July. (laughs) Mm -hmm. You know, like 2 a.m. would be too much. But, you know, if you you set off fireworks at 1130, I'm not going to hold it against you on the 4th of July. It's really, for me, a lot more about doing it on non-4th of July weekends, I think is a little selfish, honestly. Yeah, no, I, I feel that. And it's, it's funny because I don't really ever care that much. I, I can tune them out pretty well. Now, last night they were quite loud. I think we had people doing them behind my house around like midnight, which I didn't really care. I was off today, so it didn't bother me. The funniest thing is, you know, I have a dog and I, I thought my dog would be freaking out about the fireworks and he really wasn't. But he was not about to go outside and use the bathroom. So that was uh, the biggest <laughs> challenge. I had to pick him up, take him outside, and close the door so he couldn't go back in. 
And oh. <laughs> he, I, I had to kind of force him to go out there. And he did use the bathroom, but he ran back right to the door, wanting to go back in. But it was funny. So I went to the Indians game. It was a very boring game. And, you know, I stayed for the fireworks show there. They said, if you if you wait in your seats after our fireworks show, we'll have the downtown fireworks for you guys to see. Well, we were sitting on that third base side and the JW Marriott completely blocked every single, you know, view of the fireworks from where we were at, where we were at. Oh, so, no. So, like, you know, we walked a little bit. I think we parked at the zoo. So as we were walking across that bridge right there over the, uh, the White River, I believe it is. You could see them a little bit, but it was still so hard to see. So, but at least we got the good ones from the from the Indians game. I think they do a good job there. But the game was boring. But the only thing that was interesting to me was I found out that the shortstop Cole Tucker is dating Vanessa Hudgens. A lot of people know her from High School Musical as Gabriella. But uh, yeah, I just I was like, okay. And then we were trying to see if she was there for the fourth because a lot of people had their families out there, but we couldn't see her. But I thought that was interesting. Yeah. <laughs> Good for him, you know. It's a, <laughs> he's on his way up to the major leagues, so he's he's got he's got a lot going on. So that's pretty cool. I um, I did I've been to that Fourth of July game before, which is one of the probably the best game in general. I mean, obviously the quality of the game itself, um, you can't really dictate that. Um, but um, I had a uh, my dad's English, and so the whole side of his family uh, lives in um, England or somewhere close. Um, my cousin came over, um, and I was like, what's the most American thing we could do is go on the 4th of July to the Indians game and see a baseball game. That'd be pretty fun. And so, yeah, that's a really good time. Um, I would recommend that even if you can get cheap seats there, like you said, the actual Indians fireworks is really good. Mm-hmm. The thing that I thought was really funny is when he watched the game, he, someone hit the ball and they got out at first just by a split, a, a, like a hair. And I just remember him saying, why didn't he run that way? Like pointing the third base, <laughs> just go that way. He would have been safe if he went that way. I was like, yeah, that's a good point. It was really, baseball is a really hard game to pick up. Uh, you know, I don't take, I don't think about it that much because everybody learns it as a kid. Right. Um, I, I've never really been around someone who didn't know what was going on in baseball, but like trying to explain why the things happen the way that they do in baseball was impossible to do in one game. He was just kind of frustrated by the end. Like why, why, what, what are the rules? Why is this happening? I thought that was pretty funny. It's a much harder game to pick up than uh, we give it credit for. And it, there's a lot of stuff that naturally happens in the game that we just kind of, you know, shrug our shoulders at that don't really make much sense if you try to explain it to somebody. Yeah, I, I think it's one of those things you learn over time as a kid, like you said. And if you don't pick it up, then it's kind of hard to go back and explain it because there's there are a lot of different rules in baseball that people don't understand. But um, anyway, so glad we both had good force. We're here to talk Pacers basketball and I, I know you've been on uh, the Indie Corners podcast talking about Rick Carlisle's hiring, so don't want to spend a ton of time on that, but I do want to just, you know, get your thoughts on this podcast of what you thought about Rick Carlisle's hiring and maybe some of the comments you took away from what he said at his uh, introductory press conference. Oh, you know, it's um, uh, we're kind of going to go back to baseball a little bit because there's actually something that I thought about, which was, well, there was actually maybe some some concern about the fact that the Pacers hired somebody so quickly without doing a wide search, um, and the fact that maybe it's better for the coaching ecosystem to have a wide search every time. Um, they did it the year prior and hired Nate Bjorkman. If they would have just hired Nate Bjorkman without a wide search, I, I, I would have been upset about that. And if he, especially the way that it went, if he got fired after one year without giving a lot of different interviews, 
that would have been a really, 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 really bad look for the Pacers franchise. So, uh, but they did. They did. They did a very thorough search, I think. And this year, it looks like they were maybe planning on it, but then Rick Carlisle popped up. Um, I don't know how many times pro franchises of any sport have op- the opportunity to hire a guy that a has a title on his resume because there's not that many titles. There's not that many title winning coaches. Most sports ha- tend to have uh, coaches with multiple titles, or excuse me, franchises with multiple titles, and the coach picks up them all usually. Um, so there just really aren't that many that hit free agency. Usually they just retire with the team that they won the, the championship for. Um, but then also someone who is um, has worked for the franchise before. Everyone that hired Rick Carlisle is on the team. You know, like he coached under Larry Bird. And he's is in the front office. You know, Donnie Walsh obviously been in French um, hired with the franchise forever. He's in the building too, and and helping advise the role. So, the only one ever one I could think of is Tony Larusa, right? Mm-hmm. So he's now coaching the the White Sox. He that was his first job. He went out and he won uh, several titles with a couple different franchises. And now he's back with the franchise. I don't know if the front office how similar it is. I don't follow the White Sox closely enough to know that. But having not only the ability to rehire a guy, but have the people in the building that hired the guy in the first place that also has championships on his resume. Uh, that would be my sports trivia question. Um, can anybody figure out another time that that specific thing has happened? I, I think that this, it feels like it might be a first. So, um, you know, that familiarity obviously made this just a quick phone call and done. Uh, you know, and another thing that's interesting is that it used this used to be the norm to me as a Pacers fan. You know, you had Larry Brown as a coach. Then they went out and got Larry Bird, and they had like kind of a star-studded uh, all assistant staff. Um, and then you know they go out and get Isaiah Thomas, you know, who didn't have that much success, but obviously that was a big ticket higher yeah. uh, when he was brought on. Then Rick Carlisle, even Jim O'Brien wasn't the biggest, but he still was coming off of a lot of success from the Celtics, and they were trying to like have the offense of the future, you know. He had this crazy idea that you should spread out the uh, the three point line and uh, run up and down the court, <laughs> which was <laughs> seen as heresy at the time. But you know, actually, it was if he wasn't so much of a jerk, he might actually be uh, uh, a Hall of Fame coach with the with the ideas that he had. But uh, it used to be that they went out and got a fairly big name coach, and um, this uh, the fire in Jim O'Brien and the constant uh, promotion of uh, assistance from within kind of went unbroken until they went out and got Bjorkren. Um, this is just kind of, it's, it feels like there are some younger fans that are kind of like, well, they got Rick Carlisle and they never do stuff like this. And the Simons never spend like, it used to be that they cut big checks for coaches all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, that just used to be the way that it operated. So, um, uh, as far as the press conference goes, I mean, yeah, I mean, he obviously it, it's, they stated the ambition of winning a title or doing very, very well, um, which is what you want. It seemed really positive. It seemed like maybe a lot of the press conferences you've heard out of the Pacers in the last several years have been kind of one foot out the door, like being aware of the fact that there's a Vic situation happening, being aware of the fact that there have been injuries, being aware of the fact that they have not lived up to expectations. Kind of felt like the first time in a long time that there was like a uh, clean slate that they just kind of could talk openly about how uh, their ambitions for the season, what they expect, um, you know, putting an emphasis on defense, um, they crushed it. This is definitely not a, a year in which a lot of teams have crushed their uh, coach introduction press conferences. So it was nice to see that the Pacers knocked that one out of the park and um, gives uh, everybody a, a really clean, 
great foundation to stand on to be able to cheer for uh, this upcoming season. Yeah, so I, I want to start back with what you said about you know how they went out and got Carlisle, and it seems like it was not very uh, not uh, not a very thorough search. Um, I know there was some controversy, I guess, against them not having a diverse search, and there was a little bit of like a, oh, they had a phone conversation with Brian Shaw. And then Jay Michael reported, I believe it was on Saturday, that the conversation was pretty lengthy with Brian Shaw. And he might have been the guy that got the job had Carlisle's name not appeared, you know, available. So that being said, I, I'm not sure what would have happened if, if Carlisle's name wasn't on the market. But I know that it probably would have been a little, a little bit of a longer process. And so we talked before, and I know the guy that you were really high on was Mike D'Antoni. So this is me just asking personally. Would you have rather had D'Antoni than uh, Rick Carlisle, or you think Rick Carlisle was the best person available for this job? I, no, I, I think Carlisle. Yeah, I really do. That's uh, the one thing about Carlisle that's really, really impressive is that you know he, when he got his first head coaching gig with the Pistons, he was an offensive specialist. You know, he was a guy that was you know the offensive coordinator, so to speak. Uh, for a team that went to the finals and you know those those Pacers teams I mean those their defenses were good but it was the offenses that really made those teams work and then he goes to the Pistons and of course you know they change into a team that is dominating uh, uh via defense um and then he came to the Pacers and they were the same way well now he's a he's a defensive specialist well then he comes to the Mavs and then you know he ends up being um uh piloting a team that's that's winning them via offense again um, and, you know, with this Luca era, you know, now that they kind of clear out, everybody stand around the three-point line and kind of let this elite ball handler go to work, he just is a chameleon when it comes to playing style. And there really isn't a whole lot you can throw at him roster-wise and fit-wise that he isn't able to figure out. Um, that was supposed to be what they were getting in Bjorkren. And there is, I think, this thought within the Pacers that, okay, maybe we're going to trade one of Turbonis. Um, I, we ha if the opportunity pops up, like Hayward comes free, we're going to make that move. But I don't think that they're going to, and they shouldn't, um, say, hey, we're just going to trade a guy to trade a guy. So I think that there is some possibility that they go into the season with both of these guys. I do think that there are ways that you can make it work with both of these guys. Um, uh, but either way, they don't have – a real traditional lineup where there's a, uh, you know, a classic point guard, a classic shooting guard, a class. And there's also not the kind of modern uh, classic template of one amazing dominant ball handler and then role players around him to be able to shoot and maybe make a few secondary plays. Uh, this roster has a lot of talent, but it's kind of an interesting fit, a unique fit of players. And it takes someone that's going to be able to strategize how to utilize those players in the best way. And I feel really confident in a guy like, well, I, I would have felt confident in a guy like uh, uh, D'Antoni doing it, but I do feel slightly more confident in a guy like Carlisle being able to figure out that perfect, unique fit on how to make whatever roster ends up coming uh, to fruition at the beginning of the season work. Um, and so that's the most interesting thing about the Carlisle hire. Plus the fact that he has been with the franchise before and wants to come back kind of feels like to me honestly especially with him staying in dallas for 13 years it might be finally the situation where he's like okay i'm just gonna coach base for the next like 15 years and retire um <laughs> we'll see i mean obviously that's a long way to project and a million things are going to happen before then but you know it's kind of appealing to say hey we know this guy can coach 
if there's ever a problem with the roster or whatever, it's probably the, pro- the roster's problem um, at that point, unless it's a, you know, Carlisle's classic buddied heads, uh, personal problems kind of come into a head again. Uh, but uh, there's a chance that he's that guy that just sticks around the franchise for a very long time, and that's pretty cool. So, yeah, I'd still I, – I would pick Carlo, I think. Okay. It's close. I mean, you, you're, you're, you're a millionaire either way, but, uh, you know, Carlo would be my choice. Yeah, I think once Carlo became available, he's a guy that jumped up my top of the board because, like, looking at other candidates, like, I think I was in agreement with you. I was kind of expecting Terry Stotts to be the next coach. And yeah. It was just like, you know, you're just kind of accepting that. <laughs> and it's not a bad thing because Terry Stotts to me is a good coach. I was monitoring to see if maybe he'd become one of Carlisle's lead assistants. Yeah. It, it, maybe it could still happen. But with the with the news of Lloyd Pierce being his head assistant, I would highly doubt that, that Stotts does that. And, you know, Stotts has been coaching Portland for nine plus years, I think it is. So, I mean, maybe taking a break for a year wouldn't be the worst thing for him. But, you know, you, you think about Lloyd. There's a lot Pierce, of openings. Right, there is, and but we'll see where uh, where these teams are heading. Because to me, I, I feel like he's a coach that wants to win, maybe not go yeah. through a rebuild. So the only one that might want to win right now is New Orleans. That that's available, unless I'm missing another one. But uh, yeah, but I mean Washington, they're just kind of a. I mean, he could make sense in Washington, but that that team feels like it could implode any minute. But I want to get your thoughts on Lloyd Pierce and Ronald Norad, the two guys that have been named as or a rumor to be assistant coaches for this for the staff and I know Scott Agnes came on our podcast a couple of days ago and he said there's two uh, former Mavericks uh, assistant coaches that could be joining Carlisle didn't say their names um, Caleb Canales did coach with Rick from 13 to 18 as an assistant head coach or as assistant coach uh, in Dallas so I wonder if that relationship means that he could be brought back on the staff but I do think that we're kind of figuring this out. And just based on those first two names that I mentioned, what do you think of those two hirings? Well, I'd say that, you know, especially when it comes to the impact of assistance, unless you have kind of like a Steve Nash, Mike D'Antoni situation, um, which is honestly what the, again, what the Pacers did with Carlisle and Bird. Like Carla was kind of that coach at that time and, and Bird was kind of managing uh, personalities. I think you're going to see a lot of that model happening, by the way, going forward um, of the, I'll, you know, what? I'm going to call it the Pacers model, <laughs> the, the Larry Bird and having the, uh, you know, the, the, uh, the strong minds off of the bench. Um, I think you're going to see a lot more of that, but um, yeah, I mean, as long as you've got that guy that has that former head coaching experience, that always seems to help. Um, I think that there is a credibility going into the season of, okay, we went out and cut a big check for the head coach, and we're also cutting checks for the assistant coach. The fact that they outbid the Lakers for Fisdale, mm-hmm. I mean, I know I said that I'm used to the Pacers spending on coaching, but that was a little bit of, a, of an eye-opener uh, when it comes to you know the, the sort of coaching market. They're obviously very, very heavily invested in making sure that, that the coaching's right. Um, so you get that guy with experience. Beyond that, I, you know, I don't know exactly what he's going to be doing uh, behind the scenes and how much uh, uh, one-to-one, um, uh, you know, uh, actual hands-on coaching to results that we're going to be able to see. But I think at, at minimum gives everyone confidence that they're really spending and, and really trying really hard to make the best staff possible. And then, you know, hopefully he has a couple good years and then ends up going and get another gig. Um, it's cool to, to be able to see that sort of happen. Brian Shaw is one of those guys, you know, uh, and so seeing your uh, former assistants go out and get head coaching jobs is kind of a fun thing and a sign of a of a healthy bench. And I think that we're going to probably see that uh, for the next several years here under Carlisle. 
I just find the the connection between Lloyd Pierce on Atlanta with Nate McMillan and in Indiana, like all this just, you know, it just is so funny to see that interwebbing. Um, yeah, that was, that, that is kind of, well, ironic's not quite the word, but it is pretty funny. It, it is. You got the whole, you know, you talk, I think you brought this up. Uh, TJ Warren and Malcolm Brogdon, both those teams are now in the finals. I mean, just, it's just yeah. crazy. It's just crazy. And I mean, the Hawks were in the, um, the, the Eastern Conference finals too with McMillan. So yeah. who knows, who knows, but. I mean, I'm interested to see how they continue to build this staff and how these players respond. And, you know, we'll get to what you brought up a little bit earlier when you were talking about Rick, talking about maybe bringing it back to these guys. But I want to save that towards the end because we got a lot of we got a lot of questions on that. But I want to go to uh, J. Michael was reporting all weekend. I mean, the guy doesn't take a day off, you know, enjoy your enjoy your Fourth of July. But this time of year, usually we're getting free agency news. But now we have to wait another month because of how late the season started and stuff like that. But he did report to, um, on Saturday, I believe it was, and said that the Pacers are willing to move back in the draft. And in regards to the Ben Simmons rumor that came out Friday, he said the Pacers are unwilling to trade for expensive contracts. Um, they haven't done it before, and they've turned down contracts like a Mike Conley a few years ago when they wouldn't trade an Aaron Holiday package for him. So little bits, uh, quite a bit on, uh, on package there. But in terms of moving back in the draft, to me, I'm not a huge fan of that because you don't usually get to pick in the lottery, but I'm curious your thoughts on that. Well, I think that I actually really like hearing that. And I think that the Pacers made a huge mistake in whatever year this was, the Hansborough draft, when they had the 13th pick. Larry Bird loved Tyler Hansborough's motor or whatever. Um you know, that's a mistake in and of itself. But the thing that really bothered me at the time about it was that they didn't move back. Like, they could have moved back in the draft and taken Hansborough. I don't think anybody else is going to. I remember, weirdly, that they had this, like, offer from uh, the Bulls to move back, like, four spots and then pick up, like, a late 20s pick. Um, they should have done that. I mean, like, if, if you're going to get your guy, but he ends up being a – you know, have, like, a kind of a tier of players – move down, you're probably going to get him. If you don't, then you would have, oh, no, ended up with, like, Drew Holiday or something. What a, what a shame, you know? So um, <laughs> when you fall in love with the player that you want at a, at a tier in which there's too much talent, I think that's when you start making kind of mistakes. And so I love hearing that they have the thinking of, you know, there's a, there's a glob of, of players in this range that we think are all good. Once you get the seven, it's kind of the same until deeper into the draft. So you might as well move back you have the entire starting five kind of locked in. You don't need any specific uh, position. So fall back a few spots, pick up an asset, get the best player available, um, and then see how that works. Uh, I think that's a wonderful strategy. So I'm glad to hear that they're thinking that way. Um, and, you know, only moving up if they get to that top six, which is where all the, all the good players are. Um, that makes my heart happy hearing that, to be honest with you. So that was a cool part of it. Um, the, you know, I might want to read the Simmons thing in more detail because the thing that I really zeroed in on was the the whole idea of um, Mike Conley getting nixed. Like they had that trade at the deadline. That's what I assume that's what he's uh, referring to. Yeah, he was just saying the big contract. Herb Simon was like, I don't want to invest that type of money into a player's contract. Well – the first thing that needs to be said is that he was right. Like, if they would have made that trade, it would have been a disaster. They'd be going all in on the Oladipo era. That would not have worked. 
Um, he got injured the next year. Now, I mean, you know, sliding doors if he's in a different arena or whatever. Does that happen? Who knows? It's safe to say that he probably, let's just take that as a given in case that happens with the Pacers. And then obviously all the Oladipo stuff happened. They'd be in a really, really bad spot right now. Um, they would not have acquired TJ Warren because they wouldn't have the cap space to do it. They would not have gotten Malcolm Brogdon because they wouldn't have the cap space to do it. Um, Bojan. So what happened with, with, with Bojan Bogdanovic is that, what is it, uh, Miritich? Uh, who is? Uh, yeah, Nikola Miritich didn't go to Utah. He didn't go to Utah. And so uh, so they put the extra money in the Bojan, and then they end up getting outbid. And, and Pritchard didn't see that coming. And so he got surprised, and Bojan got too much money, and they weren't able to re-sign him. That would have happened no matter what. And so then you look at where would they be? What would have happened if they had Conley instead of uh, Brogdon and, and, and Warren and, and Lamb, I guess, which is you know not as big a deal? They would be in big trouble right now with the roster if they had done that. And so that is that, that's the thing that gives me a little bit of pause. And it's also this – the Pacers are going to pay, spend so much money putting all of that soaked into Ben Simmons. I think that maybe they're worried about that a little bit. I mean, eventually they probably wouldn't be able to re-sign uh, uh, T.J. Warren if they're paying for Simmons, and so then that kind of happens again, where you're basically trading the first-round pick and Brogdon and Warren for Simmons, and then there's some question if that's not going to work. Um, but I think that the, the, that's the thing that maybe gives me a little bit of pause. But, like, yeah, spending that much on Mike Conley would have been really bad. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's, whether, no matter what owner it was, that would have been a bad call. So... That's the thing that gets me going, and, and, and I don't want to sound like a ownership apologist. I've given you know the Simon family plenty of criticism for not doing this and not doing that. But I think that the 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 hesitance of owners to spend some money always gets misunderstood. Well, because what happens is if the Pacers make that Conley trade, they'd have to match or exceed the contract for Bojan, and let's say it's twenty million a year. You know, now they're paying Bojan $20 million a year, and now they're paying Mike Conley $34, oh, $4 million a year. Some team that is either a big market team that doesn't care, or maybe a situation like the, like the Bucks where they have Giannis and they have to just spend in order to make that superstar kind of uh, maximize their potential, they, they don't do stuff like that. So, like, when there is a consequence of ownership not wanting to spend extra money, it's losing Bojan, and it's losing Lance Stevenson. They let Lance Stevenson go because that would have put them into the luxury tax. Once again, I would like to point out that letting him go was an awesome decision because it ended up not being worth that contract and that really hurt Charlotte. The one time I think that they've really, I remember a a circumstance in which they didn't make a move because of the money that ended up hurting them or maybe not being the greatest was maybe Bojan. If they were a rich team, they could have this whole roster plus Bojan and be playing into the luxury tax. Does that make them a, a top two seed? Does that make them a contender? I don't know. That's a question for you to ask yourselves, I guess. But the other question is, is it fair to ask an owner to continuously pay the luxury tax to, instead of being a good 4-5 seed, be a good 4-3 seed? <laughs> you know what I mean? I think that I, I, I feel a little ridiculous in a way, but I sort of sympathize with the position of, we're not going to go into luxury tax until we lock in like a contender because they paid the luxury tax when they went to the finals. Mm-hmm. They, well, they didn't pay that bill, but that's because that team was super, super good. 
I do still think that if they get, and then, you know, you, you see the check that they just cut for Rick Carlisle. I do truly think that if the Pacers assemble the roster that looks like they were or a title contender, that looks like they were probably going to be the one seed and might win a title, I feel confident that the Simons will cut the checks to retain that team. But they feel like they have a position where if they're going to cut checks to just be a slightly better fourth seed, they're just not going to do it. And I don't, I don't think that that's crazy. Well, you know, going back to that, because the Pacers had just had back-to-back conference finals runs. I know you said they didn't want to overpay for Lance, but at the time that team that they had assembled there had just been back-to-back conference finals, you know? So to me, that would have made some sense to maybe overpay a little bit to keep him just because you want to keep that core intact. Um, just, but I mean, like, but we do have the benefit of hindsight. Well, I'm just saying, I mean, that would have been a that would have been a case, and that you know, I mean, it didn't work out in Charlotte, but I always felt like you know, Lance was okay in other stops, but not as good as he was in Indiana. I'm not sure what it was about Indiana, but he fit in better with that team than the other teams he was asked to go to. So, I mean, I understand what you're saying, and I and I agree with it to an extent. But I'm saying, if you're talking about them spending money. They just went and took, you know, the heat to seven games. But I think a lot of it was just the antics kind of just um, in that in that last series, because I think I think it was reported that Bird asked him and talked to him and told him to quit doing that stuff. And he didn't stop. So I think they felt like he needed to still grow up some in a sense as a basketball. Yeah. And, you know, they actually what was it? Uh, Latitude 360 was the place they rented out Latitude 360 and they made him a movie. And they made a movie about his life and about the next chapter of his life and then had a screening with his friends and family uh, to pitch him that free agency deal um, and try to get him to sign what they considered a reasonable contract, which probably would have been slightly unreasonable, honestly, with the way that things worked out. So they wanted him back. They definitely did. And I'm actually kind of looking back at this J. Michael tweet. The reason why your reading of this and some other people's reading of this never crossed my radar until just this moment is that he didn't say that they won't pay big money contracts. They said that they'll avoid albatross contracts. That's a different story. Okay. You know, and like a lot of people have been tweeting at me, like things that didn't really make a lot of sense, I think. And I just, it, honestly, I'm uh, until this moment at 11 a.m. on July the 5th, it never clicked in what the difference was. But the difference is that they said they'll avoid albatross contracts. They won't spend a whole bunch of extra money to get incremental talent because of a million different reasons. And I don't think that that's super unreasonable. And I think that maybe that they're, um, well, he, so J. Michael's saying this is context about the Pacers. So we have no indication that the Simons have said this about Simmons. Okay. Because that's and so, but we did, they did say about Conley and they're right about Conley. That is too much money for Conley. And it, with the, with the, if right now, they're able to kind of incrementally add Conley at that dollar amount, maybe. But where they were team building at that time, if they had added Conley, it would have screwed up the entire thing. Yeah. And so yeah. it was just the wrong time to pay way too much money for a contract. And again, I, 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 in a way, I feel sort of weird being in this position because I am not an ownership apologist by any stretch of the imagination. But like, it was my opinion of the time that it would have been a disaster to trade for Conley and the way that it's played out. I think it seems pretty clear. So they avoid albatross contracts. I don't think that that is a crazy thing to say. Yeah, I guess, I guess I just kind of, when I, when I read that to me, to me, it came across as, Oh, this is why they wouldn't trade for Ben Simmons because the contract is 
albatross, so to say. But I'm, to me, I'm thinking a 24-year-old guy who's been a three-time All-Star, runner-up for Defensive Player of the Year, like he's only 24 years old. I mean, this is the kind of contract I'd be willing to spend, uh, you know, a player or two for. I mean, you know, the rumor was Brogdon in the first, which doesn't even add up salary-wise, but I think Simmons' potential and upside is more than that. Now, I don't think he's the perfect fit, so there's that as well, and that could be part of it. Like, they don't think he's a good fit with this roster, and I completely understand that. But for me, I'm just saying, like, yeah, I don't want to spend – 30 plus million on an older Mike Conley or even like a guy like Kemba Walker who just got traded to OKC. But I'm talking more like if there's a star, like a, say a Bradley Beal or somebody like that, if one of those guys becomes available, it just, maybe that's why I read it wrong because it felt like, oh, they wouldn't want to spend money on someone who's making 30 plus million. Um, even at this point where they said they want to win now, they've got the win now coach. I would be as a fan more disappointed if they said we don't want to pay Beal's contract instead of you know them being aggressive and not winning in a trade bid or in a trade war in terms of offers because I feel like that's the only way this team is going to get good enough to compete for yeah. a championship. Well, don't forget, they maxed out JL. Their plan was to max out Paul George, yeah, give him every penny. And then their plan with Oladipo was actually to give him everything that they could have in an early extension. They were going to give him 25 a year. They were about to pay Gordon Hayward almost as much as Simmons, where, you know, it was, it was, the reporting was that the final contract offer they had was around like 27, 28 million a year range. Yeah. So we have ample evidence that they'll pay big money contracts. They just won't pay too much. Now, there could be a difference of opinion about whether or not Simmons is an albatross contract, but like, in my mind, I still think it's reasonable to say that it will actually, do you agree with this or not? Ben Simmons could be worth that deal, but is arguably not worth it right this second. Yeah, I think that's fair based on his value right now. Not sure where it's at, number one and number two. Yeah. Based on so, how, it, how they want to build the roster, because I don't think him and Sabonis make a ton of sense together. Right. Okay. So, but I think that this, the, that they would have the same perspective that any reasonable person would have was that like Kevin Durant's underpaid. LeBron's underpaid. You get a guy like that and they're at that max deal and they have all that talent, they're actually not spending enough. And we have enough evidence with the fact that they were going to early max Oladipo. They were going to max Paul George. They did max Jermaine O'Neal, that they will pay that talent when they get it. And if they have the opportunity to acquire that talent, I'm sure that they would be um, pleased as punch to be able to do so. It's just the question of Mike Conley has a max deal. He is not a max player. He just, he just straight up isn't. Um, he's great and he had an awesome season this year and I think he's a, a fantastic player and I don't I, I hate having to talk about it from that angle but he just isn't worth what he's getting paid right now um, and Ben Simmons probably isn't this moment and I think that then it becomes a, a matter of philosophy of do you think he is going to or do you think that there's a chance that he's not or do you think that he never will and so depending on where you are on that it's going to um, have your uh, uh, affect your opinion of the Simmons contract, but I think we can all agree that he isn't like Giannis. Like it's like his max deal is a joke, and what he's contributing to a team, his salary is ridiculous. And so you just sign that check and you have no problem whatsoever. Um, I do think Beal's that kind of player. I mean, he's not as good as Giannis. Obviously, it's not what I'm implying, but I'm just saying there's a lot of headroom at the top of a max deal. Of, of where you are in value over it. And I think that 
Uh, Beal is over it. Who else did you say? I forget. Um, Whoever I you said, up, I, I brought up Kemba Drew. Walker. Kemba Walker. Oh no, 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 not Kemba. Kemba, Kemba's not there. And I look at what happened with that. Was. He was he was arguably worth that that uh, max deal, but kind of not. And then maybe it wouldn't age well. And then now look, you know, like that kind of deal happens all the time, and they want to avoid that. Simmons is young, obviously, and I think that. You could talk me into saying, "Hey, let's let's roll the dice and let's take that gamble," but I just don't think it's an unreasonable position to say that that one specifically is way too much. Now, if the Sixers said, "Hey, you know, uh, Brogdon and a first for Embiid," I think they'd do it and figure it out later. You know, like <laughs> they would have no problem doing that. It's just they don't want to overpay for a player, and I don't want them to either. I understand. I understand that, and I'm I'm, I'm fine with them not overpaying, but I, I still think. How I read it and how maybe I interpreted it were two different, you know, maybe there were two different things of what he actually tweeted and how I interpreted it. But that's unfortunately just, you know, it's just how it goes sometimes when you read something on Twitter. You might not know the full meaning of it until it's explained. And so I think talking it out is really good because my first thought is just like, I just, I get not wanting to pay for, you know, because I think at that time Conley had just been you know, the highest paid player in NBA history. I mean, I remember them making a big deal about that because that's when all that money got real big. In yeah. Like 16, 17. So it's like, okay, I understand not wanting to pay 30 plus million. I mean, these contracts are, are getting out of hand, but you look at the roster now and I feel like everybody is pretty well balanced. You, you re-signed TJ Warren after, um, after this next season, hopefully we'll see where he gets money landing at. I don't know how much he'll make per year, but hopefully they can get a bargain on that because of his injury history. But um, going back real quick to the part where they said the Pacers would be willing to move back in the draft, I'm not necessarily sure if that means they want to pick up multiple picks and maybe get a couple more young guys on this roster for the future, or if their goal is to maybe trade back with a team that only has, you know, one pick and, and see if they can get a player involved in a trade or something like that, like Aaron Holiday in the 13th for maybe like somebody from Memphis in 17, like just moving back along with moving off a guy and that kind of thing. But in terms of teams that have two picks, OKC's got two at 16 and 18. They got those from Boston and Miami. The, the Knicks have two at 19 and 21. One is from Dallas. And then the Rockets have two from Portland and Milwaukee at 23 and 24. So it's like, depending on if they want to get multiple picks, I could see them moving back. But I do think that it's somewhat interesting. I'm glad they're keeping their options open. And if the guy they really like for example, a guy that I think is really interesting is Trey Mann. If he's somebody that's really high on their board, they've already brought him in for a workout. If he tends to fall, then then why not get another asset if that's the guy that they really want? And then, then that's that's not bad basketball strategy. But I just, you know, as a fan, it's hard to fathom them not usually making the lottery because they always are in the playoffs and then them finally doing it and, and seeing how well, besides that Hansborough pick that you brought up, I mean, for the most part in the lottery, they've done pretty well. So it, it feels like this is a chance to maybe hit on somebody that could be a part of the future. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. 
from the launch your online shop stage all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Yeah, you know, there always is that thing. And, you know, he, he said, you know, there might not be much of a difference between 9 to 13 and 13 and 20. And so um, maybe he's sort of implying that there is a little bit of a tier there. And you might end up seeing like a draft day thing where it's like, okay, there's like two guys that we think might hit us and they're there and then they go and then it's like, okay, now let's trade down. They also have to think about the fact that don't know what's going to happen with, you know, Doug and, and, and TJ McConnell mm-hmm. um, and thinking we might have to pick up a veteran for the bench um, while making that move at the same time. If all of the stars align in that particular way, um, uh, then I think that that's good. Um, I've been a huge fan of, you know, it's a completely different sport and a completely different ball game, but I, I use ball game as an analogy for sports. That's ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, but it's, a, it's a whole different ball game in a different ball game. Um, I've been a big fan of what Chris Ballard's done with, with the Colts, and he seems to have a really, really good grip on this, where um, this guy, two, three picks ahead of us, is well worth it. Let's move up. We could we could pick one of ten guys here. Let's move back. You know, like he's a master of that, and the Colts have really really benefited from that. And um, I uh, think that maybe a little bit of that mentality in the NBA is not a bad thing. And it just depends, you know, like if they if some guy that they love falls, and they'll just keep the pick. I I would be really surprised to see that kind of trade happen before the draft. But I think it's one of those things where it's like, okay, we got our targets. 13's up, our targets are gone. Let's move back, pick up a veteran, uh, get back a lower in the draft. Oh, and maybe pick up two picks, you know, um, maybe have two more shots um, at replenishing the bench. Um, it's, I think it's really interesting to see how Pacer player development goes going forward because, I mean, everybody focuses on the TJ Leaf pick. They got their, you know, they got uh, uh, crap on their hands on that one. You know, they messed it up. Um, but, you know, like, Yoga's doing pretty well, uh, I would say. Um, they picked up, I think most promisingly, they keep picking up young guys off of, uh, uh, out of free agency or from the D-League that are coming in and playing well. And Sumner, everybody talks about the Pacers not being able to draft well. Well, Sumner looks like he might be a contributor for uh, quite a while. He was a draft pick too, you know, and he was a much harder draft pick to hit on. Um, and if you could take that kind of newfound um, ability to find those guys um, into the draft that would be a game changer for the Pacers because that's been always been thing that one thing that's been missing a little bit from the Pacers franchise is that how many times are we plucking guys late in drafts and making them work? I mean, you could obviously there's uh, Antonio Davis and you know there's Lance Stevenson and um, you know a few other hits, but being able to consistently find guys in the rough that are serious contributors. You know, I'm going to put TJ McConnell on that list too, honestly, because he was late in free agency. He didn't make very much money. And so yeah, um, yeah. he was, he wasn't nothing. He wasn't a guy with no reputation, but it was kind of a, it, people were already celebrating the off season for the Pacers when he got signed. They're like, Oh, he got signed too. Okay. I guess that's cool. <laughs> you know, <laughs> Justin holiday is kind of a part of that too. So They've had a decent amount of luck doing that, and so um, you know, hopefully, if, if maybe if they pick up an extra pick, that they can have a little bit more luck in that sort of situation. Who knows? Well, and I, and I think too, with two picks, there's 
quite a few guys in this draft that are a little bit older. I mean, one of the guys that I think would be just a really good plug and play guy right away is I think he'll be 24 by the start of next season. So it's a little bit nerve wracking, but uh, Chris Duarte from Oregon. I mean, this guy was a lights out shooter for that team. And a lot of people have linked him to like teams that are ready to win now, like the Lakers at 22 or the Clippers at 25. Like if, if he falls in that range where you're like, okay, this is a guy we can plug and play. And then, there's another like way they can go about it. Like, hey, if we have two picks, we can make uh, a risk on more of a gamble type of guy like a Zaire Williams, who people are kind of like, I don't know what he's going to be. He could be a total bust, but it could be like, you know, he's got Paul George like comparisons. And so that's where I'm just like, maybe they could do that. Like if they get two picks, maybe r- take a risk on a guy and then also get a, an established college player because, the word on the street in Dallas is that Rick Carlisle did not play a lot of his young guys. Obviously, Luke is the exception, but it, it took a while to get into that rotation and, and get comfortable. I know a lot of fans wanted to see Jalen Green play more this year. And I know that the famous gambler that was that's on that front office staff in Dallas, uh, Haralabob and him did not see eye to eye on uh, Jalen Green's playing time. And he thought Green should play more, but Carlisle ultimately was like, I don't feel like he's ready. So, I think that, you know, there could be that part of it too. Like, hey, we're trying to win now, trying to basically get this young player reps and put him in the rotation and stuff like that. It might be more of a challenge to win games if you're trying to develop. And that's that's the hardest thing for me that I've noticed over the past years of the Pacers, developing young talent while trying to win big. And there's got to be a fine balance, but it, it's difficult for me to see how they go about doing that without maybe taking someone else's minutes away that might be a little bit more established on this roster. And, you know, I thought that that was kind of part of the thought process in getting a guy like Bjorkren. Mm -hmm. I feel like the Raptors have done a really good job of, like, this guy is athletic and talented, and he's not 100% of the way there, but there are things he can do, and we can fold them in in ways that help this team. Um and I think that, you know, Bjorken did a, a good job of that. And, you know, when he was given the opportunity to use guys in those sort of situations, he did it. And he, he helped those guys find a lot of success. And so there's one piece of good thing that you can take from that year is his ability to work those guys into the rotations and, and help them find success. And, you know, maybe that's hopefully something that, the Pacers say, hey, you know, let's let's continue that a little bit and let's think about that a little bit harder because there's a lot of sort of diamonds in the ref, so to speak, there and be able to develop those guys can really end up making your 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 bench deep. And especially in an NBA where there's so much talent and so much athleticism in the league, more than it ever has been, being able to find guys that you can cut kind of almost fresh bodies, so to speak, to be able to come in and, and play defense and, and try to wear out Uh, teams who have a lot of athleticism is going to be important and you know waiting around until you have a whole bunch of veterans that have that elite athletic talent and then are also really polished basketball players I don't think that the Pacers will ever have enough chances at those kind of players on expensive salaries to really be able to field a team like that you know Uh, Pacers always kind of trend towards kind of smarter veterans who are very skilled at basketball but maybe are a step below uh athletically 
Um, that's kind of their wheelhouse and where they're able to find talent. You know, getting the uber athletic guys that have everything else. I mean, those are the max players. I mean, they're just not going to get a lot of those dudes. So being able to figure out how to utilize players like that a little bit more, hopefully is something that they continue with the with the bureaucrat era. So Rick Carlo doesn't really have that reputation, and that'll be something to keep an eye on. Yeah, I think one thing that if you go back and look at with uh, when Chad Buchanan talked about uh, Cassius Stanley, he said we have to get more athletic on this team. So I still keep that in mind. Maybe they want to get a little bit more athletic and go that route, but still not 100% sure what they do. But I'm I'm intrigued, to say the least, in which way they go about building this roster and possibly, you know, drafting, you know, just to see what they do. I mean, I would be okay if they actually traded the pick and got a, a worth – worthy player for it but it, to me it's got to be a smart trade and not just a throw-in pick to get off a bad contract or to make room because i just i just don't want to see them do that but uh yeah and, and quick note about that is like the pacers do have a reputation to a degree of taking decent picks and then trading them for veterans and so i know that there's obviously this like oh that's what the pacers are going to do but every time that the pacers have done that they've had a hole in the lineup they had been searching forever for a point guard. And so they finally had an opportunity to get George Hill. That's why they made that trade. You know, they needed an athletic four and they couldn't find it anywhere. And so they had a cost controlled, excellent player and Thad Young. And that's why they made that trade. Ironically. Oh yeah. I'll go ahead and use ironic this time. I'm very, I'm very careful about my use of irony, <laughs> but I think it works <laughs> in this case. They traded Karis Levert, who obviously they ended up uh, uh, eventually uh, trading back for. Um, and, you know, and so there's, there's a lot to think about there um, in the sense that, you know, uh, Levert and Kawhi, Kawhi Leonard are two pretty good players, you know. So uh, they had to – that was the cost of both of those. We, you know, fans harp on that all the time. I know that the front office thinks about that all the time too. And it says, like, you know, maybe we've miscalculated uh, our the worth of those uh, particular uh, younger players uh, to some degree. Uh, but also the crucial factor here is that the Pacers have no holes in the starting lineup right now. Um, if they end up trading a center, they'll fix that hole, I think. You know, they're going to trade a starter for a starter. I would be really shocked to see them spin, like, Turner off for, like, young pieces. You know, they're going to trade one of those guys for a good perimeter player. I mean, that's what they'll do. Or a stretch four or whatever, however it ends up happening. Mm -hmm. um, uh, they, But they have no uh, – but whether they do that or not, they have no holes in the starting lineup, and they won't. So they don't have to go out and get that veteran to plug it in. And so if they make a trade for a player, it's probably going to be like a bench player, I guess, you know, and say, you know, we'll move down seven picks and then pick up a good guy to come off of the bench or a young player that, you know, kind of Jermaine O'Neal style, acquire a player that is young but underrated on another team. We can just scoop them up. Um, but I think that really decreases the likelihood that they end up trading the pick in that particular scenario. So that's worthy to know. I've heard a lot of people say that, but like they just don't have that need, you know. There's That's not a great that point. hole that you got to fill. Yeah, I know that is an absolutely great point because I never really thought about it that way looking at the roster. I could see them maybe attaching it to one of the starters if they really feel like they can get something special out of it, but yeah. That's they that's, should, they should really think about that, you know. <laughs> yeah. Sure. I mean, they've got good starters on this roster. Like you said, nobody's a bad player. I mean, it just might not be the perfect fit, and that's okay to admit that. And I wanted to go back real quick cuz you talked about when they brought in Bjorker in here and trying to maybe take a risk on some other guys. I think one guy that they really did hit on this last year was O'Shea Brissett. Yeah. Then uh, that kind 100%. of – that totally fits into that Bjorkman mold. And I don't think he'll be a starter. Uh, I mean, obviously he won't be with this starting five, but if they traded somebody, I still don't think he would be a starting five. But 
he's shown enough to be a uh, you know a, a player that can come in and, and start for a few games, and he's you know he's he was really equivalent to a first round draft pick last year, which they didn't have. So I think they found a diamond in a rough. And Scott Agnes brought this up on my last pod that I did with him. I think it's a great point, and a lot of times it's not been the case for the Pacers, but. He said, you guys got to leave that 15th spot open, you know, on the roster to add a player like that. So you don't have to cut somebody and and have it all the way full. He's like, it just makes a lot of sense to keep one open roster spot just in case you can hit on a guy like an O'Shea Brissett. Or if there's a guy in the G League that does super great and you think, hey, we might want to give this guy a look, uh, you can go about it and do it that way. Maybe hit on somebody, you know, so I, I, I agree with that. Or if a veteran becomes available, they get waived or something like that. You have that open roster spot to go out and get them. There's a, there's a lot of things you can do with it, but when you have that entire roster filled up, I don't know if you agree or disagree with this, but it just seems like it can be a little bit more, you know, complicated to release a guy because that's what they had to do with LeCue, and I think they ended up stretching him, so he'll be on the books for the next couple of years. Yep, I mean, that does make sense because it's always about the financial impact. You know, if, you're, if you've got enough headroom over whatever, uh, either the cap, or the luxury tax or whatever you're trying to avoid. Um, if you have plenty of room, then you just roster a guy and then cut him if you have to. But if you're getting close, like the Pacers are, remember fans, they're very close to the, the ceiling that they're able to spend. Um, and so they they intentionally spend up to that limit as much as they can to be able to pack the roster with enough talent, even though they don't get as much credit for that as, as they deserve. But, you know, that also creates the consequence that if you have to end up cutting somebody to make a roster spot available, you have to do it in a, in a little bit more of a painful way, Which uh, whereas if they were right at the salary cap, they could just cut somebody, it doesn't matter. Um, so, yeah, no, that makes sense, and, and I wouldn't be surprised to see them doing that going forward. You're really ruffling the feathers of the Simons won't spend money crowd well, uh, today. And, like, <laughs> and it just, let, me, let me yank that back just a little bit, like, like I said, they lost Bojan because they won't spend that much money. And they lost Lance because they won't spend that much money. But that that does happen, and that is a bummer. They tried to limp through with kind of uh, Nate McMillan for a while. Nate McMillan wasn't making very much money as a head coach. Part of the motivation of having Nate McMillan as the head coach of the team was that he wasn't making that much money, honestly, I think. And he... Um, you know, the, he might have gotten fired a little bit earlier if he, he didn't. He wasn't under contract, and they didn't want to cut that and, and pay another coach twice. Hey, he's getting pretty good results, and he's already under contract, so we're not going to just fire him and go for somebody else. That kind of stuff happens. So I just want to make sure that, like, <laughs> I, I'm fully aware that that stuff does happen, and I will give you know criticism to them when that stuff happens. It's just it's a little. Just like everything that happens in both sports fandom and just like every element of life, people are unreasonable about it, I think. And I think that they're being a little unreasonable on that. It's going a little too far in that sort of sense. Um, but, you know, there are flaws and there are consequences to the Pacers' ability to compete because of certain things that they're trying to avoid financially. Um, and so that's me yanking it back just a little bit. It's, you know, it's it's just a meter, you know. It's, there's two extremes and there's something that we're in the middle. And uh, I think we're a little bit too far in the red zone and in the wrong direction on that one. Uh, but uh, uh, yeah, it's uh, they will spend if if it's worth it. That's the key. That would be my takeaway for anybody. They don't just spend the spend. When it's totally worth it, they will spend. If Kevin Durant just gets a wild hair and wants to trade to Indiana, I promise you they will accept that trade. <laughs> yeah, I, I agree with that. I think that there's a fine line there because – 
you know, you're not going to overpay and spend for guys like Bogdanovich, Lance Stevenson, because they're not that superstar, but they would for like, you know, an A-level player like a Paul George was at that time. So I wanted to talk about this as part, actually part of our biggest conversation, and it's kind of gotten pushed down the list as we've been just going back and forth, but that's okay. Uh, I wanted to talk about Malcolm Brogdon, and I know we talked about this a little bit the last time you came on about a month ago, but I just still find it so fascinating because even I have fallen into the boat of like, I would be okay if they traded Brogdon. Like I'm not the, like the biggest fan of his style of play. Like it's fine. Like I think he's more of a two guard than he is a point guard. And so playing him at point, it doesn't feel like the perfect fit. So, um, but it feels like aside from that, fans have just completely turned on Brogdon and call him a locker room killer, a coach killer. So let's talk about Brogdon. And why do you think fans have turned on him so fast? I will sneak one thing into here in that he was a big leader of the Black Lives Matter movement. And a lot of that, because it happened in the wake of George Floyd dying, people didn't say anything because that was so egregious that the whole world agreed (laughs) for once. (laughs) And so any sort of backlash with that was just radioactive in a way that it hasn't been in any other point in modern history. Um, Brogdon very loudly led a lot of those demonstrations, um, and no one got to say anything bad about that at the time. And I do think it's a small factor, to be honest with you, about this, where it's finally time where that, hey, noted check mark about Brogdon being part of the equation of what might be kind of wrong in the locker room right now, um, I do, honestly, and I think maybe you might push back on this, but I do think that that's a factor, honestly, about why people are so ready to go against Brogdon. But that also is a segue to something else, which is, you know, when J. Michael put out that report about uh, Victor Oladipo and and why things had soured with Victor Oladipo, one of the things was that in the wake of uh, George Floyd's murder, Malcolm Brogdon was a leader in, in, in making um, on the team and getting voices out and uh, talk, having conversations about it. And that that was a moment where Malcolm Brogdon became the leader in the locker room and it made uh, Victor Oladipo a little upset. So that's Jay Michaels reporting on the subject. Um, but the reason why I bring that part up is that we have very hard proof that the team follows him as a leader. You know, if you're a locker room, this, it's sort of this weird contradiction where People want to say, hey, he's this maybe, I hate, I despise using this term and I'm quoting people in this context, but like he's a cancer in the locker room. I don't, I I hate using the word cancer to describe, you know, a person not having a bad personality that just doesn't seem appropriate. But, um, you know, this idea that he's like a locker room cancer seems bizarre when he maybe caused a riff with Victor Oladipo because everybody loved him so much, (laughs) you know, like everybody wanted to follow him and he had become the leader of the team. I've never seen anybody sort of account for that part of it when describing maybe Malcolm Brogdon being a locker room problem. Um, it's hard to be a locker room problem when everyone's following you. Um, and I think it's also funny that, and I'm repeating myself from your last podcast, but like it's crystal clear that Bjorken was a problem. So, you know, Malcolm Brogdon being the guy to maybe speak up about that probably deserves a medal. <laughs> you know, he's a first year coach, he's a rookie. You know, you want to give people like that a chance. It seemed very obvious and clear that he was not up to the job. And so someone's got to be the one to break that ice. And I'll be honest with you, I personally 
was getting to a point where I was like, man, I think Bjorken just isn't up to this task, but I didn't want to tweet it because <laughs> I thought, man, it's it's just so early in the air. It feels ridiculous to, to be that against him this early. So that even just from an, a, a no stakes outside perspective, I didn't want to speak up about it. So when that report came out, I was so relieved because I was like, okay, this is awesome because like this, this has been on my mind as well. So it's just weird to add that to the pile with Brogdon when he's the guy that everybody was rallying behind and he was right <laughs> about Bjorkert. So yeah, I will get, you'll get me on board a little bit the moment that he's wrong. And I just haven't seen a circumstance in which he's been wrong. Like whenever he's conflicted with a coach or management or whatever, you know, he was mad that he wasn't starting over Bledsoe. He should have been, you know? So catch up to me again when he rails against someone who is obviously a good thing, which actually I think we're going to see here with Carlisle. And it's fascinating because what's the, you know, the hall of fame list of all the people that, that Rick Carlisle has clashed with. I mean, Rajon Rondo and, uh, you know, Jamal Tinsley, <laughs> they famously did not get along very well at all. Um, you know, so he, he always has problems with his point guards and even seems like he might've had a problem with Luca. So, uh, we'll see, but like Brogdon as, hey, I don't want to handle the ball a crazy amount, and I kind of want to play as a hybrid guard. He seems down with that, and it kind of seems like that's what Carlo might want, might want as well. They might actually love each other, and um, we know about Carlo's famous clashes with point guards, and we know about the fact that Brogdon has been linked to this, that, and the other. So you know the Fraser's front office has, has done it. So you know they've talked about it. So. Um, they still made this higher very quickly, despite knowing all, all of those things. And um, I really like what uh, uh, Ron Artest, Meta World Peace, said about this. That, what, what was the quote? Do you know what I'm talking about? The, that the, um, you know, a coach getting along with the players is overrated? Yeah, he basically said that it doesn't matter because their job is to coach you and your job is to win games. And the yeah. relation, he basically talked about relationships shouldn't matter as much as they do. And I know that's been like the big thing because I felt like that was the case with every single coach that got fired this year or that or they moved on from it in, in like a term with Boston. I think I think Tatum or Brown came out and said something or there was a quote that I read, but basically just like the player relationship, it felt like they were losing the, the coaches were losing the locker room because the players were just not meshing well with the coach. But it's like to me at the end of the day, like the coach can't please all 15 guys, you know. Sure. And, it's, and it's so hard. Like, yeah, you got to appease your stars. And I think players that are role players understand, hey, he's top guy. He's, you know, he's the all-star. He's whoever, but he's all NBA. But at the same time, I think Artest said it on his uh, interview with JMV, basically like, yeah, like I was wanting to get like, I got 25% of the offense ran through me, but I wanted more. But, you know, it was enough for me to make me want to go out there and just work my butt off on defense to get noticed. So I had to find other ways to get noticed in the game. So that to me was interesting that he brought that up, but I do, yeah, yeah. I do remember what you said. It is overrated according to Ron Artest. And uh, yeah, I, I kind of agree with them because it's like these guys can only do so much and up to your Pacers point, like with them knowing Brogdon has not had the greatest history with the, the coaches that they've had in there already the last two seasons. Like we know Carlisle's track record. And I think basically if him and Brogdon don't get along, like, that might be the end of the road for Brogdon. Yeah, it might be. But it's, again, like I said, they know that going in. And every time you've seen Brogdon clash with somebody, it's been in a, a lens towards winning. Yeah, I haven't yeah. seen a whole lot of Brogdon like, 
hey, I need to have the ball more. I mean, he had a ball ton under Bjorkman. Uh, uh, he had the ball more than he ever had in his career and didn't think things were going the right way. So um, he's definitely – that's, I think, a fairly good indication of, like, hey, we're going to slant the offense real heavily towards you is not enough to appease him. Like, and, and I don't mean that in the sense of, like, he needs more. I just think in the sense that, like, he wants to win and he wants to play good basketball. And, like, it doesn't – yeah, it, he, hey, giving him a ton of minutes and giving him the ball a ton – doesn't do it for him, you know, and um, I think that that in, in a way uh, could be a good sign there. Um, that's, uh, uh, you know, he, it, Brogdon wants to win games, I think. And yeah. if you win games, that's going to help. And like, it, th- so there's a, a, a modern question that has been answered with the amount of t- uh, time that superstars have the ball and the time to, type of shots that they take. Mark Jackson could have had, he had one of the best rosters ever assembled under him, and he took him to like the second round of loss. And part of the reason why is that they just he didn't let them be who they were in a way. And letting Steph kind of dominate the ball and take crazy shots off the dribble ended up being something that drove one of the greatest teams of all time. But he kind of made them hold that back. The Rockets were much, much better by giving Harden the ball what had been considered an absurd amount. Um no other time in the history of basketball would a coach ever allow that to happen. But then he created one of the you know greatest offensive engines ever uh, by having the ball that much. And there's been this modern conflict between players and coaches saying, you're restricting me too much. I could be better and the team can be better. We're finally at the level where we can do the stuff. You know, like you, you might argue about Allen Iverson maybe shooting the ball too much. Like James Harden is not shooting the ball too much. Mm-hmm. You know, um, Luca is not shooting the ball too much. Um, and so you're seeing an unusual number of clashes between players and coaches, I think, because coaches have been wrong in that sense. And now there might be an issue of like too many players thinking that they should be able to do the same sort of thing. But like any sort of thought of Lucas saying, hey, I should always have the ball. He's actually kind of right. <laughs> they ended up having last season at that point, the most effective offense in the history of basketball with Luca as, as the guy that had the ball all the time. So um I think that that's the root of some things. I would just be surprised to see what the Pacers. They just don't have anybody like that. Yeah. I don't think so. Like, no. LaVert's not that guy. Brogdon's not that guy. I don't think Brogdon wants to be that guy. Um, I don't think any of those guys want to be that guy. That's why they're on this team. Um, and so that would be a source of modern conflict between players and coaches, and I would be surprised to see that happen with the Pacers. Well, I think you brought up a great point when you said that all Brogdon really wants to do is win because, look, like – the Bucks were underperforming with Jason Kidd. Clearly, the Pacers underperformed with uh, Nate Bjorkgren. But up until the bubble when the Pacers got swept by the Heat, Brogdon was all on board with Nate McMillan. I mean, yeah, came out and congratulated him on getting the extension before the bubble you know, restarted or happened or whatever you want to call it before the season restarted. And, and to me, I thought, okay, they seem to get along pretty well. So, I mean, if Brogdon's endorsing him, he really likes him. I mean, to me, I felt like that got put on Brogdon unfairly. Because to me, Brogdon was not the only one that voiced concerns or voiced that they wanted to change. He'd only been there one year. Most of these other guys had been here for two or three years under Nate McMillan at the minimum. So that's where I think a lot of that came from. It's like, we don't feel like we can win in the playoffs with them because he's been three and 16 with us, you know? So that's where I can understand why there was frustration amongst the team. And it, put, it got put on Brogdon because one, he's the leader of the team. And two, I think Jay Michael reported that he was the loudest or the most vocal 
about making a change, but maybe he was just the one that was communicating with the front office. These players are not buying into the system. It could be more so him just relaying a message than him, you know, pounding the fist saying, Hey, this guy is not the guy. Yeah, no, I, I, I that's been my read. Anytime I've ever heard of any conflict, like, Again, sort of repeat myself a little bit, but you know, anytime I've heard of him having a conflict, it's he's always been right. Yep. Um, and so I will criticize him more uh, the next, uh, the first time I think that he's wrong. Yeah, and that's and that's a fair thing. So personally, for me, in terms of like his position, I, I think there are opportunities for him to play off ball more, maybe next season. And I have talked with some people from Dallas that you know wanted me to talk about like trade ideas and stuff like that, and they said that they had heard some rumors that. The Mavericks went hard after um, Malcolm Brogdon whenever those rumors came up um, earlier in the season that, uh, that there were some issues between him and Sabonis not, you know, meshing with the with the team and with um, and with Bjorkren. So we uh, we had a conversation. They said, yeah, they actually reached out a couple of times to try to get Brogdon away from the Pacers, but the Pacers turned it down. So maybe there is some mutual interest there between Rick Carlisle and Malcolm Brogdon. And I think that we know this as – just sports watchers and sports fans at the end of the day, winning pretty much cures everything. Yep. That's right. So I'm excited to see what happens with this, um, with this season, but I do want to get to a couple of questions here. Didn't have too many. I didn't want to get too lengthy in this since we've already been going a little over an hour. So um, we'll answer these real quick. This comes from a faithful listener, David Matillo. He said, who is a big wing capable of guarding Giannis, Katie, LeBron, et cetera, that the Pacers could trade for. And I'll add this, if you don't think they're already on the roster. Well, I would say that we're getting to a point where unless there's a decent rule change, that that player might not exist at all. Like, we've had this, you know, obviously Kawhi and then Iguodala. uh, They had these players that kind of, you know, gave LeBron some trouble. Um, That happened a lot more in eras before that. But when's the last time you really saw an awesome wing just really shut down somebody? It, every time it happens, it's big news. It's becoming increasingly rare. And, like, it's like if you don't have Kawhi or PG, you might not have it at all. So that's, I think, a really big problem for teams and something that I think that they might be kind of looking away from a little bit where TJ Warren does a darn good job on those guys. And I think that you might look around the landscape of the NBA and say – I don't think we're going to get any better than that. I don't think that, that we're going to have the ammo to really get, because there's maybe about three or four of them, and we don't have any chance of acquiring them, so we might have to just uh, have TJ Ward and call it good, and these guys might be just kind of unstoppable unless you throw traps at them and, and, and kind of really change your off of defense entirely to bend towards them. Um, I'm not sure that guy exists. Yeah, I don't really think he does. I think your best option might be to see if you could get Jeremy Grant away from Detroit. That'd be my, my only guess, like, Someone that's, you know, bigger that could guard him. I'm not saying it's a perfect fit, but I do think that if you're playing the double big lineup, it could be kind of problematic trying to throw one of Turner or Sabonis out there guarding, you know, one of Kevin Durant, LeBron, or Giannis. Like, they clearly just aren't the guy for that to give you the best chance of, you know, trying to play one-on-one defense without doing the trapping. So it's a really hard thing to look at and say what player could make the most sense. But, I mean – that's just a name that I've seen do it before. I know Aaron Gordon was another guy that's a bigger forward that could be that type of player. And, and quite frankly, that's really all I'm looking at when I think about this idea is just looking at guys off the top of my head that are a little bit bigger 
at that power forward position that might be able just to match up size wise uh, with those guys. Cause like you said, it's, it's a pretty impossible task uh, to guard all, all three of those players. And we saw like a PJ Tucker, he's a little bit shorter, but I mean, he's known for his defense. I mean, Kevin Durant was just having his way with him because that shot is the most impossible shot to guard. Yep. Yep. Exactly. So, um, but let's move on to the next question. We got Juan Judah here. He said, do you think the Pacers will ever look at utilizing Karis LeVert as the point guard and possibly moving Brogdon to the two or trading for a shooting guard? So that kind of ties in with our Brogdon conversation. I'll let you answer this question. Uh, positions don't exist. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's the first thing. Positions don't exist. Like there's no, the era of like Andre Miller kind of pounding the ball and being like the true point guard. It's just never going to come back. I don't think. Um, and so um, you're sharing the offensive load a, a fairly decent amount. Um, there is no point guard of, the, of this roster. You know, some guys got to light up at the one because of uh, the rules, but, uh, you know, they're kind of dual point guards. The Pacers have been pursuing this for kind of a long time. That's the motivation for them getting Rodney Stuckey. That was the motivation for getting uh, uh, Monta Ellis, um, you know, having uh, Victor Oladipo and Brogdon together. You know, um, they're always trying to get two guys in the backcourt that can handle the ball and create. Uh, they've got it again with Levert and Brogdon, and um, I just would you you've got they've got three point guards, those two and Sabonis, and so between the three of them passing the ball and creating, that's going to create uh, uh, what they hope is enough offense to compete. But like in the NBA right now, I mean it's always been this way. I just think teams didn't think this way. But you know you have to have multiple creators, um, just period. If you don't, unless you have. Luca, I guess, you know, you are in big trouble if you don't. I mean, even the Rockets traded for Chris Paul. I mean, you've got to have a lot of guys creating offense, and, and the Pacers have that. So whoever lines up at the one, it's academic. They've got, um, you know, two slash three point guards on the roster. Yeah, no, I agree with that. I, I think that, you know, you could make a trade for anybody. I think anybody is movable on this roster. I don't think anybody should be untouchable, but for the right, for the right piece. I mean, like you said, you don't want to lose a trade or give up too much in a trade. To, to hopefully hit on, I think you have to be smart with it. And I think the Pacers are very smart with how they evaluate talent and how they evaluate their own talent in terms of um, trying to, you know, find a good trade, if that makes sense. Because the last thing you want to do is just get burned on a deal. And I don't think I've really seen the Pacers get burned. In fact, I think they might have burned more uh, people in the trades that they've made than getting burned. So uh, last question here, speaking of burns, Eddie Gilburner. Uh, coming in with a question. He said, what are the odds of trading up in the draft? And someone countered and said, or possibly trading down. So we kind of talked on this, but I guess, what do you think the odds are of them trading up in the draft? Pretty close to zero, I think. You know, <laughs> it's, um, getting a young project would require sacrificing like a, a good starter. And unless it's like Kate, I guess, you know, I think that they simultaneously might not have enough to, to, to trade up to get a real impact player and then also aren't motivated to say we got to wait on this guy to develop a little bit while the rest of our roster ages it just doesn't really make a lot of sense um for the pacers right now in this moment to make that kind of move so i'd say pretty close to zero and then trading down um it's pretty solid the fact that that's been floated out already um is interesting and so i'll, I'll give it uh 30 percent 30 percent 30 percent trading down or that, yeah, that'd be, that'd be my thing. That's, that's that's a lot, I think. Yeah. No, I, I could see – I definitely think they'll trade down more than trade up. 
Uh, it would have to be like a magnificent offer. I just, you know, I everybody throws out the Warriors trade. I think it's enticing, you know, like Lamb and Turner plus 13 or Lamb and Turner and Holiday for Wiggins and seven and maybe keeping 13 because the Warriors don't want to pick and trade a future pick. Like, I understand that logic, but going back to what Jay Michael reported, would you think the Pacers would view Andrew Wiggins as an albatross contract? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he's like the definition of it. <laughs> yeah, that's what, I'm, that's what I'm saying. Now, some people that I know, and I, and I kind of agree with them, say that he's still a good basketball player, which I, which I think that he's been, quite frankly, underrated in a sense because he makes too much money. And people say, well, he makes way too much money. He's not that good. So, But in this, in this regard, I don't think you're really trading for that contract. You're trading for the cheaper contract, which would be the seventh overall pick. And if you feel like, even though we talked about how it's like a top six draft, somebody at seven could fall to 13. So is it really worth moving that far up and taking on that contract of Wiggins to, you know, get in there? So I'd love to hear your thoughts on that, I, that trade proposal or that trade idea. Yeah, that seems like a no-go. I mean, it's the, especially since they don't think at seven, you know, that, that talent is there. I'd never thought about it, honestly. Um, but it seems like maybe the wording of that is of, of that tweet is somewhat aimed at that maybe possibility that hey there's like maybe it's after the top six it's not worth it which means seven isn't going to be worth it so um yeah i i would think that that i i'd be blown away if that was something that was yeah that's that that would be surprising to me like it'd be really fun just to see them move up for once and see what kind of player they are really targeting and who's there at seven that they just are like we gotta jump up and get this guy but yeah, I think that's where it's like, I, I like the idea of it, but I don't necessarily think it happens. So um, I'm sorry, Rhett Bauer, who's listening to this probably right now and just so upset that I'm uh, not all in on the Wiggins and, and seven pick trade idea. But I, I understand like it's it's good, but I don't know what the correct move is right now in terms of the draft. I just, there's a lot of guys that I like. I feel like there is a cutoff after 14 in my personal opinion, based on other draft people that I've talked to, but you know, at the end of the day, it's a crapshoot when it comes to the draft. You just got to be smart and, and hopefully get lucky. So um, that's all the questions I had, Dave. I know we went for about, well, maybe about an hour and a half, close to that, maybe a little bit under that. But I had a lot of fun talking with you, man. It's been a while. And uh, if you're not busy, I know we don't, I know you can't usually record at night, but maybe on draft night, if you're free to step away for a few minutes, we could have you back on. Uh, I'm actually going to be joined by Rhett Bauer to do a live draft show that night. So I thought it'd be like, might be kind of fun to see what the Pacers do and get your thoughts on it. Yeah. Yeah. Hit me up. That sounds fun. Yeah. All right. Well, anything else you want to plug or anything that you uh, just want to say before we sign off here? No, just, uh, I think that the sun's kind of cracking through the crowd a little bit for the Pacers. I think that the next season's going to be a, a fun one and there's going to be, I think something interesting that happens this off season. So there's a lot to look forward to. Absolutely. So make sure you guys follow us on Twitter at setting the pace three, my co-host Mike Focci is at underscore F-A-C-C-I. And I'm at Alex Golden NBA. We'll talk to you all later this week. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.